Hello, and welcome back to the Feed the Ball podcast. This is Derek Duncan, and today for episode 11, my guest is architect Chris Spence. Up until the late 1990s, there wasn't much interest in golf course restoration. Everyone knew who Donald Ross, A.W. Tillinghast, George Thomas, and so on were, and knew which prominent courses they designed. But very few people paid much attention to how much most of those courses had morphed or changed since the 1920s and 30s. Restoration was a niche category, with only a handful of serious devotees. And most architects at the time pursued new build design work almost exclusively, of which there was no shortage. New course construction came to a full stop in 2008, however, and since then the restoration-renovation segment of the industry has overflowed with potential employees. After all, that is where all the work is today. As such, there's never been a better time to become a Ross, Tillinghast, or Thomas expert. That's a cynical view, perhaps, but it highlights that the long-standing dedication to historic restoration is practiced by architects like Chris Spence, who works out of Greensboro, North Carolina. Spence began studying Donald Ross in the 1980s, and since the late 1990s has been one of the foremost experts on restoring Ross courses to their original form and intent, with the majority of his work located in North Carolina and the Southeast. It's both thrilling and instructive to see the sumptuous contour, green sizes, surrounds, and bunkering, not to mention the intellectual underpinnings behind it all, brought back to life by Spence at Ross clubs like Sedgefield and Carolina Golf Club in Charlotte, Mimosa Hills, Roaring Gap, the Grove Park Inn, and Memphis Country Club. I'd never met Chris Spence before, so I wasn't sure what to expect from this conversation. But for 20 years, he's been virtually consumed with the thoughts of Donald Ross and the way he laid courses and features on the ground. Ross is in his head, he says. And when it comes to that subject in the world of restoration and renovation, there's never a shortage of topics or ideas, and few people more conversant at discussing them. So we got pretty deep into Ross and quite a few other things, and so, without further ado, here's my conversation with Chris Spence. We had a Twitter exchange last week, a brief one about sand greens, and uh, you said something that was interesting to me about working on a golf course, Camden, in South Carolina, and you told me that the course was originally designed by Walter Travis, but he actually incorporated a lot of contour into his sand greens, and typically when we see pictures of sand greens, they're sort of flat disks or flat squares from you know the early part of last century. But this was the first I'd heard that an architect would go in and actually kind of create some movement and contour. Can you elaborate on that? What were your impressions of what those sand greens might have been like? Well, you know, the golf course, Travis did a golf course. It was um, called the Kirkwood uh, Golf Course at that time. He did that in 23, and Ross came back in 39 and, and remodeled the golf course. And judging from his plans, it looks like Ross kept a lot of those greens in place, and then he, he sort of folded off extensions and add-ons to, to the putting surfaces. But in, a, in our research for the golf course, we came across an article by Travis, and, and I've, I've had a, hard, a little bit of a hard time finding it, but it, it ta- he talked about it being the first set of, of contoured sand greens in America and that he felt he felt you know they were going to be so popular that, that a lot of the courses that were going to grass would would basically go back to sand when they when they saw these greens uh the greens at camden had had some pretty considerable roll and they would roll off into these sort of little dog ear areas they would drop down and feed off a, a central higher point to the green uh while some of the greens do resemble ross's 
you know, just sort of a stereotypical Ross green, a raised fill pad that's, you know, got some undulation along the edge. There are, there are several greens that it looks like there's a little raised green out in the center, and then they'll feed down and drop down into these little extensions, and, and it coincides with Ross's drawings to where he would, you know, extend a bunker or shorten up a bunker or extend a green. So we felt like that he, he left a lot of Travis's contour and and worked there and just worked with it and, and sort of massaged it a little bit. Now, we do know there were references where he was leaving uh, some of Travis's bunkers on the golf course and some of the, the little crop mounds, as he called them. Uh, so he was he was working with the design and not taking it all out. He was what I guess what he liked. He he left. So it was um, we didn't see we didn't get to see any of the original Travis Greens except there's one we discovered back in the woods where where Ross on the sixth hole had shortened shortened what is now the sixth hole up to a par three and and Travis's routing was a par four. That green remained back in the woods and basically was just taken over by by pine forest. And as we were working around the seventh seventh tee, we we saw the green. It is fully intact. Um, and that was the an old Travis green. You said that's the old Travis green. Hmm. It's covered in pine straw and and had a little bit of the native uh, rough grasses growing here and there, but. Um, it it is still there today, and we ended up putting a little plaque, and and they actually put a flag in it. So when you when you play the seventh hole, if you turn around and look back off the tee into the wooded area, you'll see that green. Uh, it's interesting to come across a relic like that. Could you tell if that were the, was there movement, or had time eroded any kind of contour away? Well, it's hard it's hard to tell. There was there were. There was definitely movement coming in from the edges, but it was it, it was covered in a lot of pine straw and leaf matter, and and we really didn't want to get on it much. Uh, we we went in and tried to rake off and expose, and the sand is still there, and we we sort of tinkered around with it uh, just in some little little spots, and you know it didn't have anything really bold. It had it had some really flipped up and flashed up uh, back edges. The the green is. The hole was coming down off of a ridge, and he he placed the green on a, you know, that particular green on a on a downslope. So the green sort of fill pads out of a downward sloping uh, ridge, and it sort of just comes out of the hill. You know, we could see some just little undulating edges where it was it sort of had an articulating edge, and we see that also out on some of the some of the greens. The the tenth green there still has some. There's a sort of a knobby, really bold knobby mound in the back right section that somehow had survived multiple renovations. Uh, and it is, we, we've got a photograph of that original green and we can see that knob, you know, back there. So it's, you know, the sand green's in place and there's this rolling undulation that sort of breaks up the back right section of the green. That must have been incredible to play a, a sand green, which I assume would be a pretty quick surface, especially during that era, and then have those kind of humps and contours on it. Uh, absolutely. It's, you know, the sand, you know, depending on the sand and the, the composition and whether it's a, a round sand or an angular sand and whether it's wet, you know, sand greens could be extremely firm and, and very fast. And they, they were manageable just like, you know, just like a grass green would be. 
so it would sort of ebb and flow with weather and different conditions. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, you know, I haven't played, I haven't played uh, Sand Greens personally. Um, not, not too many know, of us have. You know, my father and and my father-in-law neither played golf. Both as young men, caddied on golf courses with Sand Greens, and 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 neither gentleman. They, my dad's still still here. My father-in-law is not. But they they both ne- never took up the game of golf per se. But they they both you know, would discuss and talk about, you know, caddying for for gentlemen on these sand greens and what they would do, they would roll it and they would they would rake it and and flatten it out. So, you know, when their when their player was on the green they would flatten out and smooth the path to the hole. Mm-hmm. Where was and, this? Um, well one was one was in um Ashboro, North Carolina and the other one was at, at a, in Blyville, Arkansas, at Blyville Country Club, which is an old uh, Dick Wilson hmm. uh, golf course. So, so they, had, uh, they had sand greens on a Dick Wilson course. It was uh, now, you know, I don't know, I don't know the exact date when Wilson came in. You know, it may have been in the fifties, late mid fifties, but you know, my dad was probably caddying on the golf course prior to, to okay. Wilson's Yeah, work. yeah, it was probably an older course that Wilson might have right. renovated. He probably came in and grassed the greens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's about a 52, 53, um, you know, design. Yeah. You know, just until we kind of had that exchange on Twitter, I, I hadn't given too much thought to sand greens, and it made me think about Walter Travis. He's, I think he only designed a few courses in the southeast, most notably, he did uh, that little uh, nine-hill course down on Jekyll Island, and he did nine holes of the original Sea Island uh, course, the plantation course there. And you, I'd never think about it, but I, what do you think? Do you think those were sand greens? Those were both built in the 1920s. Would they have had grass there? Uh, well, I, I would say, you know, in the Bermuda regions, they, uh, they, were, they were probably sand greens, especially if we're, you know, we were talking 23, 24 there in Camden. So, it, you know, it's around the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my guess would be they were probably sand. How many, here's an interesting question. I, I mean, this sand topic is uh, kind of a wormhole to go down, but, and we'll get into this, of course, with, with all your experience uh, restoring Donald Ross courses and other old architects. In your travels throughout North Carolina, where Ross did a lot of work, most of the time you're looking at his sketches and his drawings of, of greens. Do you always make the assumption that they're grass greens? And which no, ones were sand? Uh, well, we know, I'd, I'll just I'll just use um, some of the old photographs and arrows and different things that we see. We'll see that it's a sand green, but Ross would shape shape the area, you know, around the green and show some of the spines and the rolling undulations would be would be shaped, and then the central portion of the green would be sand. But I one one golf course in particular that that. You know, Ross was never involved in grass and the greens. Was the uh, Wilmington Municipal Golf Course, mm-hmm. and and look when you look at his drawings, you see the movement and the the natural, you know, the little spines and rolls and different things that he he drew on the plans. But you know, you could see out in the center of the green there was a little circle there, and that was that was what, that's basically what they putted on. And then the the formal green once they're grassed goes all the way out to the edge of that field pad and and consumes and takes in 
those rolling undulations, they actually feed into the putting surface. And the same, we found the same thing at Roaring Gap. Um, there was, you know, started out as some, you know, potentially some sand greens. All of our photographs had grass on them, mm-hmm. but we saw, saw some of those little circles drawn on on a few of the documents. It seems like it's in the, it's in the 1920s that in the southeast you can start to grass greens. What I'm wondering is, was every green prior to that always a sand green? Or were there places um, where you could... Because Augusta National, I know, was never sand. And that was in the early 30s. They were regrassing a lot of greens throughout, you know, like at, uh, Augusta Country Club. Ross converted those greens to grass in 1927, I think. And then on the other hand, Pinehurst wasn't converted to grass until 1935. So it's, right. you know, which... <laughs> It, you just never yeah, consider these the greens thing. being yeah, sand at some point. There were so many factors in play as to whether the grass, the greens were going to be grass. I mean, there were budget considerations, soil types, weather conditions, whether it's a warm season climate or a cool season climate. I, I think some of the cool season climates, the higher elevations or further north, were, were more prone to start out as, you know, they were grassed early on. And some of these, the southern, uh, his experience with Pinehurst, was certainly leading him to um, along some of these other golf courses to make those decisions. But you know, at Pinehurst, you know, there's these stories about <clears throat> it was a seasonal uh, resort, and they would come in and overseed the greens and and do things like that to provide a grass green. So they were both sand and grass. And I don't, you know, I don't know the exact history of all of that, but you know, those are some of the stories that are told that. Mm-hmm. They would come and overseed them for the season, and then they would revert back to to sand. And then you see these photographs of the sand grains and people playing and putting on the sand grains. But it's you know you just get so much information. Uh, there's no really no way to confirm. Uh, some of your little nine-hole golf courses on very very minimal budgets. You you see the photographs of those being sand and then being grassed over. I know some Ross courses. I worked on one, Greensboro Country Club. It was grassed, and I believe it was 46. Yeah. They played on sand there all the way into the early 40s. Wow. But Ross was even even on places you know like that. I, it seems like he was thinking into the future to a time when, and the way he would design contour on the on and around the greens, thinking into the future when grass would be the surface. So on, unlike Travis, he he knew grass was the future and sand was not the future. Well, you know, and he of course he made you know Travis made the statement that he I mean he was so so excited about those, those undulating sand greens that he was making. You know, he was making a bold prediction that he felt like a lot of the grass greens would be converted back to sand. And in Ross's case, he, you know, his preference was to create these these rolling features and the little drops and dips, whether whether it was a spine or a knob or a swell or a little plateau or terrace in the green. You know, he talked so much about wanting the outline of the green to be irregular and natural. So he he wanted he didn't he didn't want them flat and he didn't want them symmetrical. So his movement on the green and around the green was all one feature. So whatever was on the green was typically you know flowing out or vice versa from off the green and coming into the green. And he talks about blending softly or you know into the putting surface. But he he liked for those greens to f- fold and roll over. 
all of those features. And, and many times when we get into restoration, the green is retreated completely off of all of that. Yeah. All of that architectural character. And, and Roaring Gap was a great example where it's all out there. The greens have never been bulldozed or altered. And we've got these little round circles sitting out, comprise, you know, covering about 50% of the putting surface. And we, we took those greens all the way back out to where they're flowing over and around and through all of those features. And it just creates these, these little pockets of, of strategic hole locations that they hadn't played in 50 years. Yeah. You know, the, the, you know, the, just the complexity of the course really changes. Yeah, I, the green surfaces were, you know, in some cases, I've, I'm looking at pictures, you know, five, six, eight yards from a bunker edge, where Ross had them basically touching the edge of the bunker. Exactly. I mean, it, you know, he didn't really have a collar. The old photographs really don't show that transition from putting surface to collar to rough as we see today. It mm-hmm. was, they were Mount Sedgefield, Memphis Country Club. We have a great photography of the original greens there. And that putting surface consumed the entire top of the field pad. And when when the green stopped and the rough started, it, it went almost vertically down in, in a lot of locations. And, and that was, whether it was an intention of his or it was just a sign of the times and the, the equipment and the manpower that it took to move the dirt and build the golf course, but we see it all the time where he, he would stake a box for the green. He would draw his plan. It would meander through that box and sometimes protrude out. But when, when those laborers got to the, got to the stake and he said, raise it three feet, six inches at stake B, you, you step three feet left to stake B and you're all, all the way back down to natural grade. Hmm. So that's where his, his distinct and steeper shoulders would come from. Uh, their, their directions were to go to that stake, and when they when they got to the stake at the desired elevation, go back to natural grade. So you've been, for I would say probably what, 15, 17 years, really been active in the restoration and renovation uh, architecture side of the game, but you came from a maintenance background. At what point in your kind of, I guess, career evolution, did, did you realize, oh, hey, I'm, I'm like the go-to guy for, for old Ross courses in this area. Did you ever, did you plan that or how did that, how did that happen? No, I never planned it. I, you know, I, I did start out as a greenkeeper and I, and I was fortunate that I worked at some, some really high profile places. There was a lot of, a lot of in-house work going on. I started out after college at the Atlanta Athletic Club and worked under a gentleman named Jim Ganley. And I was I was assistant uh, superintendent, if you will, there. And we were rebuilding greens and bunkers and things in house. So we were doing all the work. He was doing the design work. And then I, every step of the way in my in my maintenance career, I was rebuilding and redesigning greens here or there or, or close to it. So I I left that the athletic club went to Forest Oaks, and I guess it was about eighty six, eighty seven. So we're you know that's thirty. Over 30 years ago, I, I redesigned a couple of the first two greens I redesigned at Forest Oaks. You know, they had a tour event there. The, the Greater Greensboro Open was played there. So I, I redesigned a few holes and sort of got a, a taste of it, made some mistakes, and, and learned from it. And then I went to work for uh, a new golf course being built, the Governor's Club. It was a Nick, Nicholas signature d- design. Jim Light was the design associate, and I, I just sort of watched him, listened to him, had conversations with him, and watched what he was doing. 
you know, at that time with, with a Nick, Nicholas signature golf course. And it, it amazes me today, you can see a lot of Ross's influence from Sciota and Jack's work there. A lot of these spines and little rolling undulations, it's on a bigger scale, bigger, bolder scale. But from, from there, I came back to Greensboro and was at Greensboro Country Club. And that's really where it all began. I was managing two clubs uh, eight miles apart. One golf course by Ellis Maples, which has a tie to Ross. The other golf course was a Ross, a 27 Ross that had been redesigned by George Cobb in the 60s. And they would always just refer to the Ross course, and I would ask them which one, sort of tongue-in-cheek, because there was no Donald Ross left. And as those conversations continued, we eventually went to Pinehurst and got the plans, and I researched some aerials and different things. And we, we saw a golf course in that in that documentation that, we were interested in bringing back, but it was even at that time it was not my intention to step away from from being a golf course superintendent. We we were we were going to talk to some architects and that were dabbling in restoration at the time, and and I reached out and I talked to a few and and really those conversations didn't go well. And the club had been they because I, I had redesigned and remodeled and improved a number of their golf holes, they, they just sort of encouraged me to do it. What, what year was this and about? This was in, a, uh, a, let's see, 97, 96, 97. And when you were speaking to, the, speaking to other architects about this, what, why didn't those conversations go well? What, what was the dialogue? Uh, well, well, without naming any names, you know, I... I talked I talked to one architect and he was he was the guy the go-to guy so to speak and and he really didn't show any interest in it. Uh just said he didn't have time, he was busy. Uh it would be a couple of months before he could get down there. And so I moved on and the the club had done some remodel work sort of further in the direction of modernization. And I I talked to well, one of, one of the things I discovered was that the redesign plans that George Cobb had done, they had done a top topography. They had surveyed the original Ross Greens. So I had an original survey of the Ross Greens that at one time existed there, hmm. and it was missing a few plans, and I reached out to that architect, and he, he basically shrugged me off. He said, if I, if, if I can't do it, if I can't continue to modernize the golf course, I'm not interested in it. And he wanted to keep going with the mounds around the greens and, and the flashed-up bunkers, and, mm-hmm. and we were interested in, in going back to the Ross. So the club just said, listen, you know, Chris, we, we believe in you. We've seen what you've done. You've, you've done some work here and there that, that we really like. Why don't you just do it yourself and do it in-house? So that's what we did. And um, I reached back out to my old boss, Jim Ganley, who was out doing some construction work, and there's a, there's a real interesting history to Jim. Jim was the superintendent at Pinehurst when the greens were, the edges of the greens were sort of beveled down. So he was very familiar with what had happened to the, the original Ross greens there and how they, they, they were tapered down along the edge. Which, and, and which period was that? Could, was that in the 60s or was that, that was, after Diamond that was, Head? Uh, right around 70, 71, 72. He worked for, for Diamond Head. Yeah. And um, and he talked a little bit about it, you know, with the way they were trying to tie in the greens and taking a dozer and just sort of beveling off some of the undulations and tying and, and starting to turn the edges of the greens down. Mm-hmm. So it was, he and I did, we traveled around and we, we went down to Pinehurst and 
he was explaining to me what he'd done there and how it differed from what he thought was <clears throat> would have been Ross's work at Greensboro. So between the, the we have a survey, and the, and it showed a set of greens that were extremely pitched, you know, six, seven, seven feet of fall and a hundred feet, which was not going to be acceptable to modern grasses. So we we had to make some modifications. Sounds cool. And then, it, <laughs> and then at the same time, the club was not a hundred percent bought into Ross at the time. So they were, you know, I'm working for them, so they're. You know, they have the ability to influence me a little differently than they would today if I was working independently as an architect. So it, <clears throat> so we, we worked our way through it, and we created, we brought back as much of the Ross as we, as we you know, felt comfortable doing. There was a lot of the bunkering they did not want to do that I did. I, I wanted to take, the, I wanted to take the, the aerials and the plans and recreate the Ross course, but that was basically what planted the seed. Mm-hmm. And, and then as people saw... My work there and started asking me, you know, would you look at our golf course and and consider doing some design work? I it it kind of fell into place and I did for about two years. I was doing double duty and then it, it just got to be so much that I needed to step away from one or the other and I chose to hang out my shingle and give it a go. And in that process, the Grove Park Inn was one of the golf courses that had had come by, looked at the work, and asked me to. Mm-hmm. Uh, consider doing doing that golf course so that that's sort of the yeah so the, the way the transition happened when you go to pinehurst and, and get these plans for greensboro country club and you're looking at them was that the first time you'd ever really studied donald ross or seen green sketches like that well that was the first time i'd really started studying the plans that the really the eye-opening experience for me that piqued my interest was when I came up to to North Carolina in '85, one of the first things I did is I went down to play golf at at Pinehurst. Now this was back in the day they had old 328 Bermuda greens. It was very rustic and rugged and firm and fast and and um, probably a, a $25 round of golf. <laughs> uh, went down, but it, it was you know that that's one thing. But the way I had to play the game around the golf course was so radically different than all of these modern golf courses I'd been playing. And it it just forced me to Was to it because of the, the firmness of the surface or because of the way the greens were shaped? It was it was the both the firmness of the surface, mm-hmm. the way the greens were elevated, the way the ball would feed off and, and and you just really had to approach approach the game uh in a different manner, landing the ball short, trying to bounce the ball on and advance it up in the green, not not going for a hole location back over a knob or behind a bunker. You know, it, it took me about four holes to figure out you're not gonna fly the ball up to the hole and have it stop. You're gonna have to flight the ball down. I was a scratch player at the time, so I had really good control over the ball. Blot you know, blot of golf balls and yeah. persimmon clubs, but it was such an eye opening experience for me that you know, I could only imagine having not been to Scotland at the time that that's the way the game was played over there. Um, student of the game, watching all the the golf you know played around the world. I you know basically learned the game watching Jack Nicklaus on on television and tournament golf, and it it really piqued my interest. So from there, I started before I was even thinking about. Um, now this is well before I was at Greensboro, but I was at Forest Oaks at an Ellis Maples Golf Course. I started traveling around seeking out Donald Ross golf courses. 
and then you would come up on a golf course that's supposedly designed by Donald Ross that's been renovated that doesn't look anything like Piner's number two. So I started to develop this sort of discernment of, you know, is this an original Ross or is somebody, you know, redesigned it? Does it play? So I was just judging them. Do they play like a Ross golf course? And, of course, there were so many golf courses. Sedgefield was the, the next golf course I, I made a beeline to go see. And, I, you know, Sedgefield had not been touched. And then I recognized those same playing characteristics, the, the, the tilted fairway where you would, you would play the ball well right of where the hole was located and feed that ball onto the green and land it short and, and do all of those same things. And it just really it was something that just appealed to me. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, as I was seeking all of that out and playing that for four, five, six years, and then when I ended up at Greensboro, and they were calling this this thing a Donald Ross golf course, and it was anything but that. And and I would always just sort of tease them, say, which one? You know, right. which course are you talking about? Because this is not a Donald Ross. And it just took a little time for it to seep in, and then they, you know, they, they you know, we, I just talked about it all the time. Well, Ross. You know this this would play like this or it would play like that or this this hole used to used to have bunkers here and there and over about six or seven years they finally said well they got I don't know if they got tired of hearing me talk about it but it it piqued <laughs> their interest and we pursued it right yeah well that was an interesting time if you had that same if you were in a position at a club and you had a Donald Ross course and you wanted to have it restored or put have the Ross features re-implemented and you reached out to architects, you'd probably have a line of about 10 or 12 guys. In the late 90s, restoration had not really caught on yet. Is that, Was that, right. taking a look back on it, do you think that was about the time when Donald Ross and the old architects and honoring the original intent and design of their work from the 19-teens and 20s, is that the time when it really kind of caught on, got widespread, and clubs really became woke, as as we could say? Well, I think so. I think Donald Ross really got exposed to the masses when the when the Open came back to to number two, mm-hmm. and and I, I don't recall it was that ninety four, ninety six, right in there. Ninety nine. Uh, was it ninety nine? The ninety nine Open. But I, yeah. I just I just remember there was just an explosion of interest, and and people that had Donald Ross golf courses. And, and you know, there was a lot of talk about what had happened to some of them. You know, some of these golf courses had been modernized. Some had been well preserved, and there was just a sense of pride in how how well the number two course performed. You know, during that open, that you know, this was something of value. And I think I think it led to a little more uh, research and insight into what what they had, what had happened, and. And you know, Ron Pritchard was doing work, you know, back in those days. I didn't I'd never heard of Ron right. and and uh you know, till sometime later, but I, I think he was sort of the sort of the godfather of restoration and really started dabbling in it and and, and became skilled and educated in it and and started the movement. Yeah, I had um, him on the sh- on the show a couple months ago and he yeah he started the really thinking about restoration in the early 80s but i got the impression that no one else was you know taking up that cause at that time well they, even at greensburg country club there were there was tremendous pushback uh coming my way about 
you know, wanting to bring back Donald Ross. And, and there were some of the most wonderful bunkering out there. I actually excavated a lot of these bunkers and found the original sand had just been covered over. And, and, and I found these bunkers and excavated a lot of the bunkers to show the members during the project what, you know, what used to be and what, what could be. And, and some of the cross bunkering and some of the, there was a center line bunker on the 11th hole that I, I just, I wanted so desperately to bring that bunker back. Some really great pot bunkering on the ninth hole, and you know, and I was advocating and pushing for it, and and they had, they just really didn't want to buy in quite to that to that level. So we we did as much as we could around the green. We were fairly conservative with some of the bunkering that he did in in uh, in the fairway areas, but you know, it was really they were not really ready to buy in. To, to just a full-on restoration, it didn't mean anything to them. And you know, now we're we're twenty we're twenty years down the road from when that project, and that was really the first Ross project that I ever I ever uh, undertook. But you know, they're looking at you know doing some things. I think they're working with Keith Foster now, and and looking at maybe, and I don't know exactly what he's proposed, but you know maybe you know now that there's a little more support and understanding of restoration maybe it'll get a little closer or farther along to Ross to its original Ross uh pedigree yeah does that does that hurt a little bit that they didn't invite you to come do that work no not really and there there's a there's an underlying story to that and I understand I understand you know why I was not um you know asked to come back but no not really um if if somebody else can get it that close to to the golf course that I saw in the aerials and that I I saw in those plans, you know, to me that that would I would really enjoy seeing that happen. I, I know I know so many of those people and and they continue to be good friends of mine today. But it's sometimes you can be a little too close and too personal mm-hmm. on some things like that. So it's um, I, I have no. No reservations at all about the direction they're taking. Right. right. Well, so much of the architect design industry right now is geared around renovations and restorations. That's just just, just where the work is. And a lot of people who used to design new golf courses have shifted over into this field. So does it feel pretty crowded right now, all the the you know the competition or, or your, your colleagues out there who are all trying to do more or less the same thing? Well, they're they're certainly not trying to do the same thing. I mean, restoration is is starting to take starting to detour, in my opinion, away from what what you know I consider to be restoration. I think I think we've seen some things happen. We we've got a lot of young guys getting into the business. A lot of the guys spinoffs, you know, Kyle Franz and mm-hmm. and some of those guys are you know coming out of that Pinehurst experience where Core Crenshaw went in there. And, and did the number two course, and they they take a little different approach to to Ross than say what I do, and and and, and you know with some of the the sand scraping and and exposed sand and and the wire grasses and things down there, you know that those sort of indicative to Pinehurst, but you know in in on out into the state or over in Tennessee or up in Virginia in some of these heavy clay soils, that type of work is not it's not conducive, it's not suitable to that site. And Ross didn't do that kind of work. It was more the the traditional cutting the bunkers into the faces of the hills with a grass face and a little bit of a curled up sand bottom but a fairly flat sand bottom. He didn't move as much dirt. It's a little more abrupt in the bunkers and around the greens and things like that. 
but um you know when i got started the 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 vast majority of the architects really were not interested in renovation at all there were there were a handful of guys that were modernizing and and redoing some of these old Ross courses and that and that's really what sort of got my attention to you know this is not the right direction to go and i don't think you're making the golf courses better you know putting all these round mounds around these beautiful old old raw screens or you're you're shaping away the fill pads and you're flashing the bunkers and and you're taking away the playability the great playability of a Donald Ross golf course which is what really appealed to me the most and and I I I sat back in the in the late 90s and and I just said you know if and these guys were very successful doing a lot of work and I felt like they were doing the wrong thing and and I really just came to a crossroads that you know can I can I do this? Can I step out as a, as a background in in green keeping and construction? And then it, then it sort of occurred to me that you know that's the path that Donald Ross took. Uh, he you know he he cut his teeth you know, working on a golf course, working in and around the club, um, working in the green keeping side. Um, so I said, well, I'm not going to be the first one to try it. I'm going to give it a go. And uh, but I wanted it. It really meant something to me to get out there and and sort of stop that. To what I what I saw was damage and attrition to the original Ross work. I just it bothered me, and I thought there was a better better way to do it. And I said, if 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 I can get out there and and do what I think is right, I think I think there's a great opportunity to get into this business and and go somewhere with it. And that's you know 20 years later, here I am still going at it, but. Yes. You know, there there were other other people that, you know, you you look at Silva and Pritchard and Force and uh, you know Doak and and Hans and some of those guys. They all started out in in the renovation restoration business. Yeah. So I mean, from where I sit, it it looks like times have changed so much, and because of the work that that you've done and the the other designers that you mentioned have really done some incredible work restoring old courses it seems like it's a lot harder now for an architect to go into a club and take an old course and modernize it uh, their sensitivity to the heritage of these courses is so much higher than it was is that the way you see it or do you still see uh, clubs that are unaware of their history hiring architects or doing it themselves coming in and like making alterations to historic golf holes uh, i'm i'm seeing I certainly don't see it that often. I've seen I've seen a few uh, recently. I, you know, I've interviewed for some some jobs. I, I don't get every job. I don't expect to. Um, you know, from time to time, I'm I'm interviewing against other restoration architects with with a resume that that's probably a little bit longer than mine. And, it, and other times, recently, I interviewed for one. I was up against, you know, some. They were all modern designers, and. And I was really, as an old Ross, and I was really pushing more of a restorative effort. And and I was not chosen. They went they went with someone else. Went with a tour player, design firm, and and you know I was very disappointed. I was surprised by the direction. Was this, um, this was an older club. A club it was a. Uh, I'm gonna say it was a late teens Ross. Oh wow. And um, you know, and they actually gave me the proposals from the other architects. And the architect they chosen was not following Ross's philosophy. 
at all. And 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 his proposal was supported by a, a golf critic that purported, you know, supposedly is is a huge supporter of Donald Ross. And and you know, I I was a little surprised by that, but. Uh, I thought I thought they had a lot of value in their Donald Ross holes, and and they ended up going with a proposal that was rerouting over half of the golf course. Yeah. Probably ten, eleven holes were going in opposite directions and things like that. Well, and uh, all the listeners can go out and do your detective work and figure out where this is and what's going on there. I know uh, well, Chris isn't going to tell I, us. I want to be careful. I was I was I was pretty bothered by it, but. You know, I'm I'm a firm firm believer in Ross's work and restoring his work and and supporting his work. And I I think if if you look at the golf holes and there's not safety issues and you know I believe restoration is the way to go when it comes to Donald Ross. I think it's been proven time and time again the restorative projects have had the the best results. And his his design philosophy and approach to architecture is timeless. And as players age and their games change, Donald Ross's golf courses take that into account. Right. And, so, and yeah, given your given your druthers and in every project that you take that on a Donald Ross course, you'd like to see it restored as close as possible, as close as you know how to the way it was built when Donald Ross was there. Now, do you consider what you do in that mindset? Is it is it art or engineering or or some blend of both? How do you see taking uh, aerials and photographs and sketches and imp- and re-implementing that? Well, I don't I don't I don't believe that it's it, just putting it back the way it was because it was or because it was once there is not the right approach. We have to we have to take into consideration the changes in the game, but it's how we take those changes into consideration and fit fit those changes onto the land is the most important thing to me. It's restoring green complexes is is pretty much standard practice. You but it when it comes to fairway bunkers and, and it's that fairway bunker or that, that four bunker or a directional bunkers relationship to the to the golf shot has to change. Um whether or not, if let's say the tee cannot go back, but the bunkers need to be repositioned. If you're repositioning the bunker and you have a landform that that accepts that bunker, similar to what Ross would cut a bunker into a landform, then I'm then we'll we'll move some bunkers about, but we're very very careful in doing it, and we want to do it to where most players would never know it's been repositioned. Uh, in in any case, I can put something back the way it was and I have the information that shows the bunker shows its relationship and it still works for the game I want to I want to do that as much as I possibly can uh green putting surfaces we we cannot build putting surfaces with an average slope of four and a half five percent with the green speeds that the game has gone to you're not going to have any pinnable hole occasions you're going to lose all of your corners and your your back edges and 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 that's not what Ross would want you to do. I mean, I can't speak for him, but but he changed. He saw the changes in the game and the ball and the clubs, and and he was adapting to it in his design work. Uh, just the 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 mere elevation of the golf ball today versus what it was what it was like when he was designing greatly changes the 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 thought process of of how you restore and and put one of these golf courses back. 
But we're all, as we get older and we lose club head speed, we lose spin rate on the ball, the ball's coming you know, closer and closer to the ground, and we're playing a game closer to the game that he designed around. So it's, you know, it, they're all different. Um, and every club has a different different intention, different desire. Uh, you know, Sedgefield being a, a great case where I'm, I'm restoring the golf course for a private country club, and then the tourer wants to move a tournament to there. Mm. And yeah. I have to, you know, in the middle of the process, make some make some changes to try to accept that change, accept that game for without destroying the golf course. The easiest thing I can do is make it, you know, difficult for the t- tour player, but nobody at the club's going to enjoy it. So, did Sedgefield was that? Uh, how did you adapt to that knowledge then? What, that did you move tees? Is that where you would would adjust fairway bunkers to modern okay. lengths? Or did you do anything I around just, the greens? I just, just a few. Uh, Setfield was bunkered very modestly. There, yeah. There's a lot of rolling landforms there, and Ross relied on those landforms uh, to provide the strategy and any kind of difficulty he wanted. Uh, the ball would scoot, you know, t- sort of take some of the distance off and scoot left or right. And, and the golf course really twists and turns through some really dramatic and uh, sort of unorthodox slopes. Uh, that, that lean away from the player and you know dog leg and turn away from the player and really require some shaping. But the main thing I tried to do is add length at the tees because then we were playing into so many ridges and and landforms that my intention was to bring that landform back into play. And the bunkers were tied to the landform, so we 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 negotiated some some easements and things to to stretch out the golf course. There were a few. There were some holes that backed up where the tees backed up to roadways to where it sort of forced me to move bunkers. So instead of a bunker being at about, say, a, a, a turn bunker being at 280, I, I took them on out to 295. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just made a, a, a few adjustments like that. But it it really didn't change the golf course a great deal. The tour did want me to soften the greens uh, more than I intended to, and I and I resisted that, and then... Uh, they have even come back since then and and really been advocating for more softening of the greens, which I'm I'm opposed to. And yeah, I'm, that's got to burn of, you up. I'm on, I'm on the outside looking in uh, on that deal. I mean, it's their tournament and their their event, but well, the, is the um, the club must support that as well. It's their golf course. Well, I, so far the club has 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 stayed you know stayed true to to Ross. And and they've resisted, uh, you know, softening these greens up. There there's some greens out there that I, I absolutely just think are the most magnificent uh, green complexes and 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 designs by Ross that they want to flatten and and uh, you know it's I, I I don't know how to describe it, but it's just hard to it's hard to fathom that anybody in in the design field would want to harm something like that or destroy it just because. They're going to run the green speed up for a week to, you know, twelve and a half, thirteen, and and it limits a couple of hole locations. You know, slow the green down, or, or you know, don't destroy it for everybody else. Is my I guess my point. If you were gonna, if you were in charge of setting up that tournament at Sedgefield for the pros, how would you set it up differently, and what would the result be? Well. Sedgefield, you know, Sedgefield. I don't think we've ever had a breath of wind from from day from Thursday to Sunday in a single event there. And they, 
I would certainly use a lot more of the hole locations out in the corners and in some of the pockets. There's some very deceptive little places that are in that two, two and a half, to almost three percent slope range. They, I don't know exactly what the tour's criteria are for a hole location. Um, they are very, very conservative in and around the hole. The first six or eight feet around the hole, they want it fairly flat at a percent and a half or less. Um, and this was verbalized to me, and 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 that kind of ended the conversation. But. Um, there's certainly a de- difference in approach to ch- picking and choosing hole locations and how you use the par threes than what I would do. But um, you know, I'm not invited to that discussion, and and I, I've tried, and we've 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 tried to influence that a little bit. But they they sort of have a, a standard practice that they like to follow, and that's where they go. Um, I, I think it's a shame. Sedgefield, um, I, spent a, I spent a little time with Corey Pavin, mm-hmm. and we, we went around the golf course, and it was one of the most magical days. I was not playing. I was just walking with him while he played the golf course, and he was, he was sincerely interested in every little nuance and slope and detail, and, you know, if I hit it over here, will it move this way and that way, and what's it like up in that whole location? It was the most fun I've ever had on a golf course. And he was hitting these little creative shots and, and little short shots around the greens and chipping and putting. And we spent a lot of time out there. And at the end of the day, he, he turned and he looked at me and he said, you know, sad sad thing is, Chris, the tour are never use any of the cool stuff. He mm-hmm. said, they're going to stay out here in the middle. He said, they're, they're just not going to go up in there. They're, you know, there's pace to play. There's TV. There's a, there, and, and I understand that. There's a lot of, a lot of factors that, that play into it. But. You know, when you're when you're all into the architecture side of it and the Donald Ross, and you and you want to see him respected, the club respected, it's it's kind of hard to take. I've got, I know, even though it's just one week a year, and the members get to play the other fifty-one weeks and get to experience all that, you'd like to see that the nuance and the 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 way the tour game would have to change up and alter their strategies a little bit to take on some of those hole locations. You'd like to see that broadcast out. It might do great good for the world of golf and golf design. I, I agree. I mean, there's there are some hole locations out there that they've never used that the members regularly use. The ACC uses, the AJGA uses. Um, there are a lot of events played out there, and and you know our question is why why don't why can't you use it? Yes, the tour pros would really have to ramp up their attention to detail, and and there's going to be some some putts and and short shots around the greens. Get away from them and and go off and run down the slope, but that's exactly what you see at Piners Number Two on a much larger scale. But that's the USGA. I think a USGA event at Sedgefield you would see those whole locations in play. Yeah. You know, we all, I think it's well documented by now that those greens at, at Pinehurst were not the same greens that Donald Ross designed. They started off almost the opposite with more high shoulders, and sometimes they'd roll off those shoulders down to lower points inside the, the putting surface, and then they evolved over the years through top dressing, et cetera, et cetera. Have you seen that phenomenon occur at other Ross courses that you've been involved with? Um, the closest thing I've seen it, it, it was was where top dressing had built up on a green that had had retreated in from its features, and that was Roaring Gap. And the and and the interesting thing about Roaring Gap is it, its original name was going to be the Pinehurst of the Hills, and the the uh, Tufts family was involved, and they they were you know they were the original developers up there, and. 
and those greens, those greens had risen up about 10 to 12 inches, and they were playing on about half the green. But when I first went up there, was was asked to, to come up to the club. The, the, what they wanted to do was tie that putting surface in to the outside of the green, where where all of those rolling undulations were were located. Where it sort of had created this little valley, and there was drainage issues, but. But Dunlop White and I were talking about it, and, and I said, you know, the problem with the green is the, the center of the green is too high. You don't want to shave the edge of the green down and taper it down to those outside elevations, or, or these greens would have turned out exactly like Piner's number two. So, you know, we advocated for years to, to remove that buildup, reset the center of the green back to its original elevation, and then expand the green back out so the outside edge of the green was higher in some locations, a little bit lower, but it, it was sort of articulating and feeding in and out versus predominantly feeding out. And, and I, I really see that process. It was that decision not to, not to put a bulldozer and shape all of those, those movements away and taper that into that, that sort of a pancake of a green. It was starting to feed away from the center. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we both faced the same decision. Pinehurst bulldozed the edges. We took the center down and then expanded the green back out. And, and, and I say that with all due respect to the number two course. I think it's the greatest set of championship greens in the world. I mean, they're just, I mean, they, they place such a premium on, on the way you approach the green, but the, the outer edges and the, the, the corner hole locations that raw, true Ross greens are, are so known for, the little protruded places are not really there. You can't get that close to the edge without the ball going on down the slope and down into the chipping area. Mm-hmm. So it's, but those are the two. Memphis Country Club was very, very similar. Uh, greens had retreated in, they had built up, uh, they had lost all of the thumb and ex- protruding and a little extended hole locations. And we, we were able to, with some tree clearing and getting sunlight on those areas, we were able to lower the centers back down and, and extend those back. Those, those fill pads were all original. So we had the framework and the shape of the green still intact. Um, but those are those are really neat projects. I mean, I, even though I'm doing a project and a service for the club, I just feel like I get I get so much more out of it than than they do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just an educational process. Over 20 years now, basically, you've sort of been in the world of Donald Ross, and from that that era when he was building courses, do you just I mean. Are you? Do you ever feel like you're in his head, like you know what he's thinking, or is he in your head? Like you know, you have so much knowledge of of Rost. Is it just? Can you? Do you ever get away from that? And do you feel like you just know exactly what he was thinking on any given co- golf course or g- given hole? Well, I, I, he's certainly in my head. I mean, my my training, my training basically came from him through the study of his work, and and I really didn't venture outside of his work that much. I've done I've done some work on on some Tillinghast and Rainer and, and a lot on Ellis Maples, but it's my my training has been in a fairly narrow uh, focus, and with the majority of it being Ross. But I, I think I have a really good understanding of of his philosophy, uh, certainly. And and I always tell people that Donald Ross, when he when he would look at a raw piece of ground, he he was just seeing you know what is the ball going to do here on this this tee shot or this approach and. We can sight a green here, and 
you know, the ball's going to move left, and then I'm I'm going to take the player back left to right, and then right to left, and and I I just think I don't think he was ever you know looking at looking at the land, looking at his his bunkering and things like that in an aesthetic form or. You know, it was it was all functional. It was strategic. It was it all had a purpose, and that's my approach. And and there are times when when people are looking for a lot more pizzazz and they're they're looking for a lot more dramatic bunkering and things like that. And I'm I'm not going to get those jobs, but I'm comfortable with that. It's you know I want to recreate that golf that he saw. I'm not yeah. trying to recreate the look necessarily that that ended up as a result of his work. I mean, we want it to look like Ross. We want it to play like Ross. We want it to feel like Ross. I'm I'm getting ready to do Sarah Bay Country Club in Sarasota, Florida. And and the bunkering has sort of ventured away from Ross, and the greens are have been raised up well above what Ross would have raised these greens. So we'll we'll be taking taking those greens back down and resetting those greens and taking away the excess material from the greens that that's the number one thing i see uh hope valley is another example where the green the golf course has gone through multiple renovations now the greens are two feet higher there's no fill pad slopes visible any longer and and the approach does not transition and flow into that putting surface like ross envisioned so in sarah bay and hope hope valley both both 26 ross designs will you know, Sarah Bay's happening this year. Hope Valley's on down the road, but we're going to take the center of those greens down about a foot to a foot and a quarter, and and transition that green back to its surrounds and its approach, and then recreate all of the features that we can see on his drawings. We have a great set of drawings at Sarah Bay, so that we'll we'll be putting back an original set of raw screens that have been long, long gone. I mean, I, I don't I don't know exactly. It's been since uh, early '80s. Mm-hmm. Since there was any Ross, any of the Ross greens still on the property, right, right. Ross did so many golf courses around the coast of Florida on both coasts, and it, it was almost always, with a few exceptions, on dead flat land. Do you notice anything differently when you're looking at Sarah Bay or other? Was he doing anything different with the way he approached green design and bunkering? Well, he, I think. You're you're less likely to see a green laying down on flat grade on natural grade. Uh, he's going to pop them up in the air a little bit and put them. You know, he's going to raise the front of the green a foot, foot and a half, and tilt it. You know, back to front or left to right or whatever. But his his work followed the same pattern, strategic pattern. That you know, left to right, right to left. He he was really balancing out. He's going to try to examine the player's game thoroughly. Uh, he's leading the player across the property with some bunkering, and a lot of that is, you know, over an open piece of property then, but now it's treed, so we don't we don't need as many of the directional bunkers because we have the, you know, unfortunately we have the golf hole framed in by by too many trees. Sarah Bay's done a nice job of of tree management; it's still fairly open, but the the bunkering was modernized a little bit uh there ross was using little groups of two three four bunkers here and there and then he would mix it up with some nice angles um and that's kind of what's missing is the the you stand on the tee and his bunkering which would suggest a left to right tee ball and then he would set up maybe the green with an approach bunker short left to to lead the player in right to left and then he would you know he would sort of tic-tac his way down the golf course in, in that fashion, making sure 
the right to left player, left to right, high, low, were all accounted for. So we, you know, we, we're going to be bringing all of that back. And even though we can't shape the golf ball today, we we want to encourage the players to learn learn why those bunkers are there, what it's suggesting they try to do, mm-hmm. and try to take themselves through that process. I always thought Ross was as much of an architect. He was teaching America the game of golf and, right. and how to play it and the skills that you needed to be successful at it. Yeah, he talks about making holes, you know, never try not to design ever a straight hole, making players like zigzag their way from tee to the green by positioning bunkers and kind of forcing them to visualize a, something less than a straight straight line. Well, if if you study his his plans, which I have thousands of his plans, right. and you, yeah. you just take a ruler, draw a line straight from the green to the tee, you'll see his hazards will go out touch or slightly cross or sometimes directly cross that line up and down the hole. So he pushes the fairway out to the left. He pushes it back to the right. He enters the green at an angle. And, it, and it's fairly subtle a lot of the time. But, you know, sometimes you can look at a plan and the hole will look straight, but the, the topography the topography of the, of the land is anything but a, a straight playing golf. Well, Mimosa Hills in Morgan in North Carolina is the greatest example of this you will ever see. The plan looks straight, but because of the way the fairway is pitching from hard you know, right to left, and then the the green is perched up on a on a hill, and, you know the ball is going to hit on the right, move to the left, and then you you need to sort of hit a drawing shot or a fading shot and land it sort of out near a bunker or something because the approach is is flat on one side and extremely steep on the other. Mm. So it's not just looking at plans will not always tell the story. Right. Uh, you have to study the land, but it's it's such an interesting exercise to go through, you know, what that gentleman, you know, would see in walking property. You know, for the first time and laying out a golf course on it is is just so much to learn from his approach. Well, that, that's why the, your Sarah Bay project is going to be so interesting to watch because that's a golf course where there really isn't that much land movement, unlike Mimosa Hills. You know, there's just there's that and, and, you know, a dozen other golf courses that he designed in Florida that I've played that are just flat and they've lost all of their character over the years. The, the bunkering is insignificant. So it'll be really interesting to see how Ross uses bunkers to reshape those, those shot shapes and those hole corridors when he doesn't have the topography to work with. Exactly. He, I mean, down there, he's pretty much using the the bunkering to move the player and move the hole. He's using the angle of the greens to 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 lead the player in from one side or the other. Uh, there's a, there's some pretty good movement here and there in in Sarah Bay, but it's real subtle. It's real long and drawn out, so it's it's not as noticeable. But he there again, he he would he would tee the player off from from a little high spot and he would cross some little little shallow valley and he'd take them back up to some high ground mm-hmm. and then he's cutting those bunkers into the face of that high ground and he's moving that player through the through the property he's just really asking them to pay attention take into account what he's what he's put out there confident players taking on the bunkers the less confident players maybe playing out to to a wider side and and then there's something else for that player going into the green versus the aggressive line. Uh, and we want to bring all of that back and and make those players, you know, learn the purpose behind that bunkering and and learn to play the game and negotiate the golf course. Uh, the greens, 
you know, the greens there, we're not rebuilding the greens. We're just going to, they, they've got an abundance of about 20, 24, 30 inches of mix on them. So we're going to be able to cut into the root zone uh, of those greens and, and, and just get out there and shape. So we're, we're actually going to take his plans and we're going to stake those greens out to his plan. So we're, we're going to act almost in the capacity of, of one of Ross's associates. Cool. And use use the plans that he gave them many years ago in the twenties, and and we're just going to take those plans, and they're going to guide us through that process. And then mm-hmm. we will we do have to we do have to take into consideration these greens are going to be fast. They're going to have Tiff Eagle, Walter Dwarf Bermuda on them. So we want to create all of those all of those features, but we're going to do it in in a in a fashion that we think works with today's green speeds. Right. You mentioned, um, just to switch gears, you mentioned Ellis Maples a little while ago, and you've worked on some of his designs, and he was obviously from North Carolina. His father worked for Donald Ross at Pinehurst as a greenkeeper, and he's designed numerous courses in North Carolina. When you look at Donald Ross and his style and his approach to golf and landforms that you're so familiar with, and then you look at Ellis Maples, what are some of the biggest differences that you see? And on top of that, does Ellis Maples represent a significant shift in design from the 1920s of Ross into the 1950s and 60s and 70s when he was more active? Uh, well, there, there's no question he represents a shift. He he had equipment and uh, available to him to move material uh, in a much larger fashion. And, and this is pure speculation on my my part, because Donald Ross introduced Ellis Maples to the business, and and Ellis actually worked for him a little bit on on some of his his last projects. He was he was brought in at Raleigh, uh, you know, to, to sort of finish the job off. But he had he had had some influences from Flynn and and Wilson, some other people. But whereas Ellis would build the green up, like Ross liked to build some of the greens up. But he, but he would put three times as much material under, and then he would taper the slopes much further out uh, than Ross. Whereas Ross would get to the edge of green, and he would quickly get back down to the ground. Ellis moved a lot more dirt, and he and he also shaped and manipulated the fairways to to his you know suit his sort of contouring desires. But his bunkers were were boldly flashed bunkers with sort of an articulating top edge, and they. They had a lot of elevation in the bunkers and a lot of flash, so you know that's a that's a really strong deviation from from Ross. He liked to bunker the outside of dog legs quite often, something you just don't see Ross do much of. Mm-hmm. He did bunker the insides, and 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 I'm I'm very fond of Ellis's work. I think he was a fantastic designer. I I don't think he got the caliber project all of the time that that Ross did, but. But I think the equipment, the availability of equipment to move the dirt, and uh, influenced him. And and I, in this the speculation part that I mentioned was, even today, in 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 the restoration field, we get a lot of pushback to the depth and the severity of some of Ross's bunkering. Ross's plan may show the bunker to be three feet six inches or four feet six inches. Which means basically, if you're in that bunker and you need to hit a five iron and you pushed it way up into the bunker, you're not going to the green with your five iron. You're going to come out short of the green and and have to maybe tack over an approach bunker and recover on the golf hole. So, you know, I speculate that you know, Ellis was hearing some of that pushback and he went in a different direction. And that's, 
you know, it's just guesswork. I don't have any evidence to suggest that's what happened. But he almost immediately went to a flash face bunker and did not build a, a raw style bunker. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, and of course, he wanted to uh, create his own path and, and be successful in his own right. And that's not unusual in architects to to radically change. I mean, if you look at Tom Doak's work, you know, somebody that started out with Pete Dye, same thing with Bill Core. You don't yeah, really. They, their even work doesn't look like Pete Dye's at all. No, but I can I can assure you they are greatly influenced by by Pete some of Pete's strategic thinking. And mm-hmm. I and I'm doing a project in Charlotte right now called Providence Country Club, and and everybody assumed well he's going to do something that looks like Donald Ross. I said no, I'm not going to do it. It's it's not a Donald Ross golf course, and and I'm not going to. You know, I'm not going to make it look like a Donald Ross, but his philosophy and influence on me will certainly factor into my decision making on how I shape a green complex or angle a green or position a bunker. So it's you know, it Ross comes through me no matter what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. They're not all going to some of my remodels. I don't. I purposely. You know, it's kind of fun for me to sort of let the cat out of the bag, so to speak, and and really get a little more diverse and and creative. Whereas some of these restorations, you're, you're sort of in a box a little bit, and you're, you know, you're trying to honor and respect his work so much. It, it'll, you may hold back in a place or two here and there where you might want to do something else. But so it's, but every step of the way, Donald Ross is his his philosophies with me. I, I can just. <laughs> state that straight up right right just to finish up on ellis maples really quickly when when you're working on one of his courses do you feel the same sense of uh, the obligation to honor his design intent that you do with donald ross um i do i do to a certain degree not to the same degree uh i just did the dogwood course at ccnc right uh you know one of his best designs and and there were there were some some of the outside bunkering some of the the bunkering on the outside of the dog legs that just don't factor into the strategy of the golf hole you know i I may remove some of that and be a little stronger on the inside of the dog leg with bunkering which would be a little more toward ross um on that project uh, i was asked and, and i agreed that we needed to respect uh, mr maple's work and we wanted the golf course to remain in ellis maple's design so the the style of bunkering is his uh, the placement of the bunkering, especially around the greens, is his. We we made some changes to the fairway bunkering uh, in a few locations to to improve strategy or or adapt it to the modern game. But I've done Cedarwood and Charlotte is is a green where I restored his greens. I, I thought it was one of the most fabulous set of greens I'd seen uh, by Ellis Maples, and I I just I said you need to restore these greens. And I restored those ever bit as much as I've ever restored a, an authentic Ross green. Um, there are some some places out there where his work, whether it was budget or who, who knows what was going on, is you know it's pretty outlandish in places. Some of the contouring in Ellis's greens will you know, six seven thousand square foot green. You got two hole locations, so he he did some he did some stuff back when greens were rolling five and six on a stent meter that. You know, you just can't put back today. Yeah. <laughs> you get some forty-foot rollouts on those. Oh yeah, but it's I, I you know, I, I admire his work, and some of, some of my favorite golf courses are his golf courses. I, I think he's very uh, underappreciated as an architect. Um, 
you know, in the realm of of some of the designers back in that time. I don't I don't think he gets the credit he he deserves. Everybody, you know, they talk about two or three in and around this area, but I've seen some around the country that I was surprised were in Ellis Maple's design that I thought were as solid, hmm. absolutely some of the most solid golf courses I've seen, but they're at a, a lesser-known club, and, you know, they don't get any – they just really don't get the attention. Yeah. How often do you get to go around and look at new architecture, you know, golf courses that have been built in the last 20 years? Uh, not as much as I would like to. I, I made a trip down to Streamsong um, – not since the black has been in, but I, I saw the red and the blue. And thoughts? I, mean, I, I, um, I, I just to be honest with you. I, I, I love the place. Absolutely love the place. Uh, I thought the ar- architecture was spectacular. I love the 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 nuances and the differences between what Doak did on blue. And, and what Core and Crenshaw did on red, I thought the red was probably one of the best golf, new golf courses I've seen in 20 years. Uh, the blue, um, I played first, and I'm glad I played it first because I, you know, I was trying to kind of get my game back under control. And it's a little more forgiving, and you know, and Tom does some things with the greens, a lot, a lot bolder things with the greens than what Core and Crenshaw did on the red. So they. They contrast really nice, but I, I, just to to do that out in the middle of Florida on on you can see what the site looked like if you mm-hmm. look off in the distance. And for those guys to create that kind of that kind of architecture and and just the the strategy and the the rumpled the way they rumpled the ground and made it look like it's you know been there a hundred years uh, is. It's very educational mm-hmm. to me. It's it's very inspirational. The approaches are something that I pay a lot of attention to. Uh, made a trip to Scotland this summer, and and you know approaches were my focus because uh, I want to do more leading into the greens and how those features work in and 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 either go into the green or down the side of the green and impact those shots that are landing short or or approaching that green. But I, I thought what you know that particular element of the design of both architects was just outstanding. You know, the red is usually considered a, a little bit more of a demanding driving golf course. Is that something that fits? You know, you said you were you probably preferred that a little bit. Is that one of the reasons, or was it about those uh, the the ground right in front of the green, the way you could play shots? Well, into it was. It? It's a little more of a dramatic. You know, he he intertwined it through some more dramatic elevation, vertical change, some of the old old spoil piles and things uh, are a little more present over there. You know, I've heard people criticize the first hole, and you know, but he gives it right back to you on the second hole. Yeah, you know, the first is but at the same time, even though he doesn't show you all the width off the tee, once you get through the little little notch in the in the the mounding, you, you know, there's a lot of width, and even the shot into the green, it's one of the biggest greens on the golf course. The fairway flows right onto it. There's nothing forcing you to play an aerial shot onto the green. It's slightly uphill, but you know, you, you, he, he gives you a little more comfort in hitting that long shot into the green, but then he turns around and you play a, you know, a, a fairly, what I thought was a, it wasn't a short par five, but it was one you could manage and, and get up close to the green and sort of you know, balance those two golf holes out. And then you start into some you know, much more precise uh, tee balls mm-hmm. and um, and approach shots. But it was, you know, to me, the blue was a, a lot more forgiving off the tee. But he really made you think on your approach shots. 
and and where you position and you you had to pay attention to where that hole location the seventh hole there was you know that that really dramatic par three over the water mm-hmm. um you're staring at the green and you think if you play into the green and we played it three times so the first time i hit a hit a shot that i thought was perfect and he hit the side of this little knob and down you know down into the down to the left yeah, down into the left, and there's an alligator laying there, and I, <laughs> and I was in trouble. But the next time around, I knew you got to put a little further right. You got to feed it around the mound and let it let it go on back into the green. And and there was a lot of that. I, you know, and they and they were you know they incorporated some of the you know Bill. Well, Bill did. He's you know, he's got a sort of a Baritz. I don't re- remember the number. Maybe fourteen on the red. Um, you know, so he's he's you know a little bit of the old school classic concept templates. Yeah, but uh, so this this led into a question I was going to ask you, and you kind of touched on it before about um, interest in in designing new golf courses or stepping away from you know the restoration game. And you mentioned that you know that that would interest you and it give you a little opportunity to kind of flex your design muscle a little bit. You teased out uh, a little earlier about Providence Country Club. Is that the same project you teased on on Twitter? And if so, what are what are your plans for that golf course? Is that do you, will you get a chance to kind of put your own style of design on that? Well, I've I've done a number of projects where I put my own style, and, and it's and and it is what I was referring to, and it it's it's sort of when you do a lot of restoration work, you you're you're exposed to ideas and you're and, and you travel around and you see things that you want to try or you, things you think will work really well, and, and you're influenced by a lot of these concepts. and And I'm big on angles, and I'm and and I've done a lot of Ross where the where the grass is rolling down, and, it, and it's not a real flamboyant bunker. It's it's you know it's just kind of cut in, and 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 there's not a lot of aesthetics to it. And sometimes they don't show the angles as well as as you would like, but. At Providence, it's a fairly flat piece of property, so I'm I'm going to be splashing the bunkers up, pushing the bunkers up. So I've got flat ground. I want to move the bunkers up above that elevation to give the guy, of course, just a little bit of vertical elevation change. But I want to set the bunkers on some really nice, strong, discernible angles. Whereas there there are really no angles at all on the golf course. All the bunkers are sort of flanking out to the sides of the fairway. So I want to bring those bunkers into the fairway. I want to push the fairway from side to side. I want it to bite into those golf holes and then turn the greens to to work with those angles that I'm creating and set the greens on some real nice strong angles and and but but you're going to see a lot more sand and and I've just I'm doing doing a golf course right now Jefferson Landing that I'm doing this pretty much a, a similar same bunker on Dogwood course was that type of bunker um, you know, I haven't done straight up new, you know, golf in in my career. I, I came along sort of at a tough time for that, but I've done Lake Toxaway was a golf course that I completely repurposed the entire property, and it's it's a new golf course, complete rerouting, reversing nine holes, building five new holes. Uh, the town of Morrisville is another one where. It, it was an original Ross nine holes, but because of some commercial encroachment on the property and an old industrial pond, I was forced to reroute the nine Ross holes, completely reroute them. But I basically just just sort of erased what was there, and then I said, okay, I'm going to play Donald Ross, and I'm going to follow this land, and I'm going to visualize golf shots. 
and I'm going to cut bunkers into upslopes, and I'm going to set greens on little side slopes. And I recreated a Donald Ross nine holes in the modern era. And if you go there and play it, you will you will see all of the nuances and 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 all of the philosophies of Ross. And it feels like a Ross. They believe it's a Ross. Everybody that plays it, but it's 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 a new golf course. Right. And uh, but it's there's no question. Uh, I mean, I've I've probably signed two or three uh, new designs uh, from scratch, and you know they got caught up in the in the economic stuff, and uh, but it it just hadn't worked out. Hopefully, it will. Yeah, gotten awful close a few times. <laughs> I hope it does too. We'll keep an eye on Providence. That sounds interesting to be able to kind of utilize all again, utilize all the knowledge you have from Ross and see what a, a modern version of of Ross would look like there. Well, I, I wouldn't really call it that. It's 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 going to be a it's going to be a modern version of Chris Spence there. there you go. Um, but it's if, if somebody that knows Ross and knows his strategy and his thinking and placement and angle, you'll you'll recognize it. But it's we're going to take a set of modern green fill pads, and we're going to carve carve the outside of the greens up to make them look a little more old school. But it really, the the main deviation from Ross is the look of the bunkers. I mean, Ross flashed; he flashed bunkers occasionally in a few few locations, but predominantly he was he was cutting them into the ground. He was, you know, with a grass face. He would pop the sand up. You'd see a little sliver here and there. But these will be very bold and very artistic. And um, what we kind of call call a bull nosed bunker, we'll roll the grass over. So it's it's sort of a combination of flash sand and a little bit of grass face folding over the top uh, but it's 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 going to be fun we're you know we have to use the routing that we're handed we're we're in a residential community so we have boundaries on all four sides but uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna move a few holes and uh we'll work with the other ones but we're going to create a very distinct and noticeable uh golf course there that's that's unique to providence and that we don't want it to look like any of the other clubs in town and there's there's three other ross courses in town two of which i've done work on <laughs> right so i didn't really want to i didn't really feel like it was appropriate to take it toward one of those golf courses i needed to set it off to itself good well I'm, that sounds exciting for you um we should probably wrap this up and if you don't mind i've got a couple outgoing questions that I'll ask you. Okay. And uh, I, I ask this to everybody. And I'm curious to get your answer. You touched on it a minute ago, but maybe we can get you to go in a slightly different direction. Um, what is the best modern course that you've seen or the course that the modern course in the last 20, 30 years that you'd like to play over and over again? You mentioned stream song and both courses, the red particularly, but anything else come well, to mind? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really eager to get out and see, and see, I haven't been to band and I've, I've had a couple opportunities. I haven't, haven't been able to make it out there. And some of these new new golf courses that are that are being done. Um, I'm trying to think of the name. Mike Nuzo did a golf course down in Texas that I've uh, I've wanted to go see. And then Trinity Wolf Forest, Point, yeah. Wolf Point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen a lot of photographs that, of, of the golf course that Mike did there that that really intrigued me. I, I thought it was you know something that was really looked interesting and something I'd want to I'd want to see um and then um you know Trinity Forest I know Casey Coff down there I've I've talked with him and that's mm-hmm. that's one I want to see I'm I'm not a as much as I like the work of, of Fazio and Nicholas and and some of those they those aren't the golf courses that I 
that I'm going to drive very far off the beaten path to see. I'm, of course, I'm going to I'm going to go see an old original Ross or Tillinghast or something like that pretty quickly. Yeah, I get you. But uh, is there a Fazio course that you have seen that you've enjoyed? Oh yeah, I play I played a lot of Tom's work, and I'm, I'm I really like Eagle Point a lot. You know, it's it's one that you know it's it's always the wind's always blowing, and and he sort of took a. I knew the ground before he started, so I've I've always really appreciated the accomplishment there. Uh, that I thought, you know, I thought was just fantastic. Oh gosh, um, you know that that's the one that yeah. <laughs> that that really comes to mind. I, I thought Mountaintop, you know, here in North Carolina was 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 an incredible accomplishment for such a severe piece of ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, a little different than some of his development courses. Um, I really like those. Um, what old course have you seen that you're familiar with? Probably it's going to be a Ross, but w- which of those courses that hasn't been touched lately would you love to most to get your hands on? <laughs> oh, well, I'd have to be careful in how I answer that. Um, you know, in and around... In and around North Carolina, I would I would love to get my hands on um, what's the old golf course um, the Elks Lodge is on. Um, yeah. I'm at a loss for the for the name of it right now, but um, but there's an there's an old Ross course over there that that had nine holes of sand greens, and they actually talked to me one time um, about maybe even restoring some of those holes back in there, but. But um, I don't, you know, I don't know. I, you know, if I see a golf course I really, really like, I don't, I don't, I don't see any need for me to get put my hands on it. Um, you know, if it's if it's an infrastructure, you know, that's one thing. But you know, I've never been one to, you know, to want to just change a golf course because somebody's going to let me. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's so many Donna Ross golf courses in in the country, and not all of them have been, you know, put back into proper form. So I thought there might be something you were aware of out there that had so much potential that it isn't being realized. But, you know, I understand sensitivities with clubs and club members and so forth. You may not want to say it, but if you think well, of it, go I, ahead. I'll, 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 I'll tell you one that's, that I've thought, I've thought for years is one of his absolute best designs here in North Carolina. And a little bit of expansion and a bunker, bunker restoration would go so far. And I, and I think it is second almost to none in this state and that's Hendersonville Country Club and not many people are aware of that golf course but it has one of the most fabulous sets of Ross greens you will ever see and the bunkering's been tinkered with a little bit and it's it's over treed and they're 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 bypassing a great little par three they added a little par three a little drop shot par three but the the other hole is still there and I've I've visited with them a couple of times but that's that's one here close by that I would would absolutely love to get my hands on. That's right in Tom Fazio's backyard too. <laughs> well, he, a lot of his guys are members there, and it'll ne- it'll probably never happen. But he's, you know, Tom Tom is a member at, at one of my golf courses up at up at Toxaway, and he, uh-huh. he and his wife live up there, and he plays there, and he we we've had some fun conversations about how much his wife uh, loves what I did at at, at Toxaway. <laughs> you know, and he he tell he he teases me. He teased me and said, "You know, my wife thinks you're one of the greatest architects ever." So, well, I'll, well, I'll, take I'll that take praise that to the I'll, bank. I'll, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last one. Um, 
you've got to retire somewhere. You're going, you're in your twilight years and you've got to commit to one golf course to play over and over and over again. What's the golf course out there that completely fits you, your personality, your game and your, your love? Which one is it? <laughs> it's not in the United States. That's okay. That's I, I thought you might say a Ross course, but yeah. So which one is it? Oh, no, no, North Barrick. Oh yeah. Now, did you did you see that for the first time? Quirky. I did. I saw it. I saw it this summer for the first time, and I absolutely fell in love. I couldn't get enough of it. I, I think it, it's it's got it's just got so much quirk and unique uh, character to it. Absolutely blown away. I mean, Dornick would be another one that I'm just you know I could just go around and sure, around makes, and around. Makes and, a lot of sense. But in in the United States, it would be Fisher's Island. It'd okay. be a rainer. A rainer. Interesting. Yeah. What about what about that course? Did diff, is that different to you than other Rainer courses you've seen? The setting of, of course well, is incredible. It is. Well, it is. You know, Rainer uh, there's no fairway bunkering at uh, Fishers and I can't say that it needs any. It's it's you know, it's basically playing along the water for most of the day and you you, you either play along the Atlantic or Long Island Sound, but it's it's just to me it's got it's got width, it's got contour. It's got such unique character. It's got the template holes in different forms, but uh, I've probably played it six or seven times, and and it, it's a golf course I think about often. I'm doing a rainer right now at Blowing Rock Country Club, and mm-hmm. it's uh, sort of a late discovered rainer. And um, we are it's it's a membership that's on up in age, and we're we're trying to bring back some of the template holes on it, but. You know, I think back to some of the things that I've seen at, at Fishers and and um, Lookout and Yamens and and some of these other Rainers at uh, Fox Chapel and 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 you see, you know, you just see that the way he he approached architecture and it's vastly different. Uh, he was not the player that Ross was, so he he really I don't think he really thought about the game of golf like Ross did. In, in the same fashion, he was right. following the templates and the McDonald and you know influence on him. But um, I, I really like it, especially now. I can still get the ball around a little bit, so I'm, I, I enjoy the challenges of, of Rainer and, and sort of breaking out. Ross is without question my favorite. Uh, Oyster Harbor Club is just one of my all-time favorite yeah. Rosses. Uh, you know, still intact. All the greens are. Uh, all the greens are there, and, and you look at the plants and you see the green, and that's that's rare to see something that well preserved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say that's one of the best top set of greens that Ross produced, among many. But uh, it gets it's a lot. Got of, it all. Yeah. It's, it, you know, you see you see Ross is when you when you study Ross plants, you see a lot of a lot of things that he does, and he's done on multiple golf courses, and he's he's sort of got this this bag of uh, bag of tricks. And and they're all there, uh-huh. <laughs> and it's just really fabulous uh, preservation of an original, uh, original set of Ross greens. Well, someday in the hopefully distant future, we can cross paths, and you're retired on Fisher's Island or uh, <laughs> on the Cape of Massachusetts or uh, North Berwick or someplace. And uh, in all we'll likelihood, you. I would retor- retire to a warmer climate, and I may not be near a golf course. Well, there, like an what, like an island or someplace like a private. Yeah, the Caribbean. I'm, I'm very fond of, of, of St. John and and St. Thomas and the Caribbean, the U.S. Virgin Islands, British Virgin Islands. I absolutely, that's my favorite place to get away from it all. Well, 
you could yeah, there are a lot of worse places to go uh <laughs> good choice well chris this was really fun i appreciate you taking time the time went by pretty fast but uh we i think we covered a lot of ground i appreciate it okay well thank you thank you for doing this and having me on okay i appreciate it we'll talk soon hopefully take care Derek. bye that did go by fast. At one point, I looked down and noticed we'd been speaking for about an hour, and it felt like only 15 or 20 minutes had gone by. But that dude knows Donald Ross. That's about as close to a master class as we're going to get when it comes to the ins and outs of Donald Ross design. If you're going to be in the Ross restoration business, there's probably no better place to live than North Carolina where Chris Spence is, with the exception of Massachusetts. But Ross designed or renovated about 50 different golf courses in that state. I thought it was fascinating to hear Chris talk about how Donald Ross would set up the architectural features of a hole, how he would align his hazards, create different lines of play. But it was also interesting to hear him talk about the art of restoration or the job of restoration. He said that building greens and bunkers is kind of the easy part. That's the standard practice. Where the real work is done is understanding how Ross utilized the topography, why he placed features, what was the intent behind the placement and the structure of the features that that Ross would put in a golf course. And that takes years and years to understand. If you think about it like that, not all restorations are the same. It's not merely about mimicking what we see in sketches or in photographs, but understanding the design intent and the the way and the reasoning behind the decisions that Ross was making. And Chris did an excellent job of explaining at least the way he understands Ross and the way Ross worked through a property. One little bit of housekeeping to come back on. When I asked Chris what course he would love to take a shot at restoring, we were both drawing a blank on what it was. Uh, It was Southern Pines located just outside of Pinehurst. I should have got that. I guess I didn't realize or make the connection that there was the Elks Lodge there. But that was a Southern Pines, a big whiff there on my part uh, for not being able to pick that up. But I want to thank Chris Spence for being a guest this time. That was a great conversation. I'd like to encourage everybody to visit the feedtheball.com website for stories and news on upcoming podcast episodes. Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram. It's at feedtheball. If you've been enjoying these podcasts, please subscribe to them on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Just go to the app on your phone, search Feed the Ball, hit the subscriber plus button. You can even fill out a review, give it a star rating if you'd feel so inclined. As always, I'd like to thank the Sundogs, in particular, Lee and Will Haraway, for letting me use their music for the bumpers. They're going to close this episode out with a song called Mississippi Kite. So until next time, I appreciate it, and everybody take care. 